question. Yes. Did you ever get my project? Um, I shared it to you via Google Drive. I think so. All right. I'll just, check. Just want to make sure. Yeah, I think so. Email me again and... Did you ask me to tell you whether I got it? Uh, no, I forgot. That's why. Yeah, I so ask me to tell you. Email me again. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and then if I get your email asking whether I got it, um, this is known as the two generals problem in computer science. Anyone know what that is? It's interesting. Look it up on Wikipedia. It's part of the more general Byzantine generals problem. Do you know what it is? Oh, we've actually previously discussed Yeah, I know. So, yeah. I seeing if people are paying attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. You got it. See, and we couldn't know this was a demonstration of the two generals problem, so it was a good one. Um, okay, so some of you, did you um, get the midterms back, your set? Okay, um, I haven't uh, quite finished my set, so um, if you're freaking out because your friend got her midterm back but you didn't, it's not because I figured out you were cheating. Um, yeah. Um, but only... It's actually because Brandeis changed its wireless configurations and I couldn't use my computer here. So um, I have a few left to get back to you, and um, it is my plan to do so. Um, so don't freak out yet. Uh, freak out soon, just don't freak out yet. As for the papers, um, those will probably be another week. Um, is that okay with you? Yeah. Um, so just telling you where we are, um, your work-wise. Um, all right. How many people were seeing Groundhog Day again? Okay, good. Um, it's a movie like you should really watch every day. Um, he got it, yeah. And how many people are seeing Groundhog Day again? <laughs> Guys, all right. Um, okay, I thought, and uh, are, have you started, I know it's midterm, you just did your, your take-homes, you just did your exams, yeah, there, were, there was all this reading to do, but, you know, there's still Passover vacation. Um, have people, how shall I ask this, have people dipped, have people familiarized themselves at all with uh, the Kierkegaard? At all? Okay, sort of. Um, yeah, you figured out that repetition isn't repetition, but repetition. It's like a three-peat. Okay, you should really read the Kierkegaard. Um, if you started it, I hope you're thinking it's great. Um, and if you haven't started it, I'm also hoping you're thinking it's great. Um, the issue of repetition, obviously, even if you haven't um, looked at the Kierkegaard, the issue of repetition is important to Groundhog Day, and it's also going to be important to source code. How many people have seen source code already? Um, okay, well, it'll be interesting to um, um, think about it um, after Groundhog Day and also in the context of Kierkegaard's repetition. Um, there's, I, I think, the overlap or the intersection of all three, of repetition of Groundhog Day, of source code, is an interesting um, overlap and intersection. There's a lot to say about repetition, not only the... Um, Kierkegaard pseudo-novel, um, or whatever it is, but the concept of repetition as pretty much inaugurated by Kierkegaard is a philosophical issue, pretty much, not entirely, but pretty much inaugurated by Kierkegaard as a philosophical issue. It became um, something of um, extreme fascination, extreme obsession, you might say, um, to people after Kierkegaard. Did you want to say something? You sure? Okay. You did, but you're not going to? No, I didn't want to. Is, is, that, is that your line? All right. Um, 
but let's, um, so we may start talking about that today, um, but uh, if we don't, that gives you more time to um, start reading Kierkegaard. There isn't that much reading. Um, these two weeks, there's repetition, which is not that long, and uh, which you can do either really slowly or really fast, and I would recommend the fast version. Um, and there is this one essay by D.K. Lewis on truth and fiction, um, which is interestingly related. But for those of you either who saw Groundhog Day for the first time or, um, or saw a repeated version. I thought that there are a couple of scenes I want us to look at, but I also thought that it would just be interesting to talk about it philosophically. It raises um, a lot of questions, both philosophically and narratively, or through its narrative, it raises a lot of uh, philosophical questions and through, um, inevitably, through its philosophical um, approaches, it raises some narrative questions as to exactly what happens. So, um, what did you think of it? Or let me ask the teacherly question. How does this movie fit in with our concerns in this course? So what I'm going to say is your midterms on the whole were really good. And I also have to say um, surprisingly good um, given how much you don't plunge into conversation here. So plunge. You should. You have really great things to say. Yeah. Um, we, we've been talking, in terms of time, we've been talking a lot about uh, the, the fact that we perceive it as linear simply. The fact that we perceive it as linear. Yeah, successive. Uh, and Groundhog Day that. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. Although each episode or, or each day um, only makes sense if you take it as a linear day. On the other hand, you don't have to take the representation of each day as linear. One of the neat things about the movie stylistically, I mean, I think it's brilliantly directed. I think it's brilliant in every way. Um, brilliantly acted, brilliantly directed, brilliantly written. Um, and one of the brilliant directorial or editing choices is when you get just a staccato series of the same events over a course of several days. Um, that is, it's fairly easy to follow the first three days as three days um, because the first three days are given to you as a kind of template for um, those three days. Why should that be, actually? It's, it's worth just pausing on that for a second. Um, I guess it's, let, let's talk about this structurally because this is a place where the philosophical and the structural um, uh, profiles of the movie really do fit together. Um, why does the movie start in Pittsburgh? That is, why does it start at the TV station and not in Punxsutawney? Yeah. Andrea, sense. right? Yeah. yeah. That there is an outside world and that he's not, like, that Punxsutawney isn't really it and he's trying to get out of it and what he's trying to get out into. Uh-huh. Okay, so there has to be an outside world. Um, if it had just started, you know, one possibility, obviously, is to start um, maybe a little bit in the Dark City mode. If, it were, if you were comparing it to Dark City, if you started the way Dark City started it, how would it start? I mean, obviously, it's snowy city, it's bright city, but and it's not a city. Um, so in every way, it's the opposite of Dark City. But nevertheless, how would it start if you were starting it that way? Yeah. Yeah, 
or at least he'd be you would see the clock hitting six and him waking up. Why would you say it would be the second? Okay, so um, I think the point is it would be starting at an indefinite, um, an nth repetition, an nth petition. Um, and we wouldn't know that it was the first time. Um, it would be the first time for us the way it is in Dark City. That is, we, the first thing we'd be seeing would be um, for us new, but when we saw it happen a second time, we would be entitled to wonder, or even not to wonder, to assume um, that what we had seen before was not the first time. That is, that we came in in Medias Race, um, we came right into the middle of a story that had been going on for some time, and um, now we're just catching up with it, like Achilles catching up with the tortoise. Um, but who knows how many times he's already lived this day. Um, whereas by starting it in Pittsburgh, in the radio station, there's an outside, which is where he's trying to return, and we need to know that as a goal for the movie. That is, where is he trying to get to when he's leaving after after um, the groundhog, after the ground, after Phil, after Phil the groundhog sees his shadow. Um, but also that it started at a certain point, that we see the first time he wakes up at 6 a.m. and does the broadcast, and then we see the second time he wakes up at 6 a.m. and does the broadcast, and we recognize that the second time is the first repetition. That is, each repetition is that number of iterations minus one. The third time is the second repetition. The fourth time is the third repetition, etc. Um, and you need the outside. You need the outside world. You need Pittsburgh. You need them driving in to um, Punxsutawney um, in order to see that the series of repetitions has begun. That it isn't. It hasn't been an endless series, or that it hasn't been going on for an indefinite number of times. So, um, what that then means is that we're focused in a way that we're not focused in Dark City on the experience of um, realizing that you're stuck in repetition. In Dark City, um, we have to catch up with the experience of the characters in that movie. We have to catch up with Murdoch's experience. We have to catch up um, with the guy who throws himself in front of the train's experience. We have to figure out what Kiefer Sutherland knows and so on. Um, lots of evil geniuses in Dark City. Um, but in um, Groundhog Day, we know just as much as he does throughout. That is, it's not um, the case that we know more, and it's not the case that we know less than Bill Murray does, than Phil does. Um, and um, that means that we are recognizing the beginning of repetition. We recognize when repetition starts, and we recognize when it comes to an end, just as he's recognizing when it starts and when it comes to an end. Um, and so that, that, get, that has a very, very different effect. Um, 
what that means then, you could say, is that the first three days, which we do get fairly um, um, detailed expositions of, like the three days, this will be the only time in your life, I think, that you will hear this comparison, but like the three days in Jean Dielman, the first three days of Groundhog Day um, are setting up the structure that enables us to, um, it enables our entire interpretive approach to the movie. So here what happens is the first day is, the, the second day is a repetition of the first, but we don't know that the repetition is going to be something that recurs. That is, we don't know that it's going to be repeated repetition until we get to the third day. That is, the first time something is repeated, fine, you get a binary. Something happens, and it's new, and then it happens again, and the again part is new. If something happens and then it happens again, that's like, whoa, but it's also like, well, that's deja vu. That already happened before. Um, and so what we had was an event and its repetition, and those are two different and distinguishable things. But once you get a second repetition, then there's a way in which you're not quite getting anything new, substantially new, deeply new, basically new, primordially new, when you get the second repetition. Because when you get the second repetition, then you know what's going to keep happening which is that the days will repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And um, when they repeat and repeat, I mean, if you take a movie like Unfaithfully Yours, there are two versions of that. Has anyone seen it? Um, it's, it's pretty good. The first version is uh, Preston Sturges starring um, David Niven. Um, Unfaithfully Yours is, the first half is a fantasy that the main character has of how he's going to murder his wife and be happy. And it all works out really, really, really well in his fantasy. And then the second half, um, he tries to do it, and everything goes wrong. Um, and the point is that we have the same events first in fantasy, then in reality. But that's all you need. There's, you have a series of events, then you have their repetition with a different outcome, repetition with a difference. Um, and that's the whole structure of the movie. To find out that the structure of this movie is more than repetition with a difference, you have to have repetition with a difference repeated and repeated and repeated. And what establishes that is the second repetition, which is the third day. Um, I don't want to belabor this, but I think it is important to see that repetition itself needs establishing. One repetition isn't a repetition. It's like the sound of, well, we all know the sound of two hands clapping, but what is the sound of three hands clapping? That's really what um, a second repetition establishes. Yeah. Here, you, cl you clap, and here's a third hand. That's the sound of three hands clapping. Just now you know. Um, so the second repetition establishes the fact that repetition is the issue in the movie. So that's one thing that it's doing structurally. Um, after that, individual instances can be repeated. Um, after that, also, um, what we can have are 
Um, well, let me just ask this. What are the different kinds of ways um, that the movie avoids being boring? In other words, it's a movie that's a little bit hard to sell um, because if you say to someone, well, it's about a guy who keeps waking up on Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney, um, Pennsylvania. Doesn't that sound interesting? Day after day after day in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Yeah, Andrew. Um, I think the phases that he goes through, like the um, kind of almost extreme happiness that he realizes that he doesn't have any consequences, and then the extreme depression that he is waking up on the same day and that he can't die, um, and then also the progress that he makes, mm-hmm. which I kind of have a question about because with the homeless man, like, I felt like that was the one thing that didn't get resolved, but maybe I'm just not interpreting it right. But on the other hand, is it resolved because he just accepts that there are some things he can't control? Was that the resolution of him trying to save the homeless man, but he can't? Yeah, I think the homeless man is a really interesting question. Um, And it's... um, It may be something to return to, but let me just ask ask this. Were other... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Instead of when he messes up, instead of starting all the way over, I like that they skip right to it, and you can see the immediate effect. So that when he goes through all the way, you're like, okay, finally he does it right, then he makes a mistake. It's not like we have to go all the way back, but it skips right to when he corrects his mistake. Yeah. So part, so that part you could say is like rehearsing an orchestra. That is, okay, you guys did really well till the 23rd measure, but you really blew that glissando, so let's take it from the 21st measure and go from there. Um, and there is that sense of, um, you know what the word repetition means in French is actually performance. Um, and rehearsal, um, it, it's closer to rehearsal in French than it is in English. Um, but let's go back just, just for a minute to the homeless man question. Um, how many people were, obviously, I think we're all interested in it, how many people found it um, either troubling or unresolved or think that, that the resolution um, made sense or didn't or wasn't quite harmonious with the rest of the movie or what? What did people think about that? Yeah, let's just, yeah. I think the reason that he identifies so strongly with the uh, homeless man is that no matter what, um, no matter what, he can what Bill Murray does, that endless loop that they're experiencing always ends uh, with the old man dying. Yeah. Just like no matter what Bill Murray does, he'll wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll still be Groundhog Day. So, yeah, it's that same sense of despair Yeah. Uh, that I, I think he sensed uh, for that man. Because the, the guy couldn't sense it because he didn't know he was going to die. Yeah. So, <coughs> but one of the things that he's trying to figure out is um, is the old man is the homeless man necessarily going to die, or is it that exposure and want and, and hunger and so on um, are what's killing him? So part of what he does when he says, you know, to one of the la- one of the last things that he does, um, which is a sign of just how well he knows the time before that final evening, um, where we finally get to the Groundhog Day. Um, after party. Um, But one of the things that he um, does is he learns every disaster that happens, or every every, um, thing that goes wrong in that town that day. 
and in this kind of super heroic way, he makes sure that he's there. So presumably, he does save the life of the guy who's eating the steak, um, the who then becomes the master of ceremonies for the party. So he does the Heimlich maneuver. Um, the guy shoots out the the piece of steak um, across the room, and and everyone is grateful. And then we see the um, upshot of that later on. Um, presumably he's been doing that now for a few days, so every few days he's saving that guy's life. And that means that presumably before he saved the guy's life, we can um, assume that the guy dies. Um, that is that his intervention is one um, of several interventions that he makes as he learns all the things that go wrong in that town that makes um, people's lives better. Um, he jacks up the car and changes the tire. He saves the kid from falling out of the tree. Um, he saves the guy who's choking's life. Um, and those are all good things that he does. Um, there's some things that he does that we don't even see him do, like um, that we only really find out in the party. Uh, do you remember any of those? Yeah. Well, essentially getting really good at the piano. Really <coughs> going in for the first no, we see him in a second class, um, and she right. says, "Is this really your first lesson?" And that's another way of saying that it's n and n minus one. That is that he he learns. Um, he's slowly learning the piano, and each time he's starting his first lesson um, a stage farther. There's actually a really interesting novel called um, "I, the Divine." Um, which is subtitled, and it really is what this novel is, a novel in first chapters. And what it is is the narrator keeps writing the first chapter of her novel and never gets beyond the first chapter. But in the course of the entire novel, um, you can figure out the whole story. Um, and there's a way in which that's what his piano lessons are like. Um, each lesson is supposedly the first. Each one he's paying $1,000 for, presumably, and the girl is being kicked out. Um, and each time she's more surprised at how good he is for what he's claiming is a first lesson. Um, yeah? So uh, he fixes some guy's back. We never see that. Yes, we never see him fix the guy's back, the guy who calls him Dr. Connor. Um, and he says, oh, it's just non-horrific, but we never see when he does that. And uh, then he also convinced the uh, short blonde to go through the marriage. Yeah, and she's grateful for that. And there was one, the only time we've seen them before, do you remember? We actually have seen them before, just once, though. We saw them, they just mentioned that she was going to get cold. Yeah, so we see them in the diner when he, when he um, tells Annie McDowell um, that he's God, um, or a God, rather, um, and the way he proves it is by knowing everything about everyone, and one of the things he knows is that she has cold feet. And he's saying, what? Um, we also know, or he knows, that um, the waiter is gay, he says, I am. Um, and those are all things that he knows, but we don't see him learning them. Um, it's simply the case that he knows them. Now, what we can guess, we sophisticates, we college students, college students like us, um, graduate students like us, um, what we can guess is um, that some of this is on the cutting room floor. How much do you think? What kind? What things do you think are on the cutting room floor, and what things do you think um, were scripted, never, never to be shot? Um, that there was no thought 
we're never storyboarded. We're never we're never um, going to be shot. It's not a hard question. You can guess. Sam, you want to guess? Guess away. I imagine that none of them were originally storyboarded. That it was intended just to be part of the script, not outside of the narrative of the story. Like it was never going to be. Is that the question that you're asking? Yeah, so you think none of that? You, you don't think there was a scene of him fixing the guy's back in one that they I shot mean, and decided? There might have been discussion of it. I, doubt, I don't know. I, I didn't think it would ever be like, actually written into the story. Okay, there's just so you know, there has probably. I'm not going to quite say this because I think Russian Ark might not. Um, uh, well, I don't know. There's probably never been a movie made without um, without um, footage that isn't part of the final product. And um, but in this particular case, we're talking about footage that was felt to be unnecessary. Um, that is, that you could tell the story without that footage. Um, but there's never been a movie made which doesn't have footage that people realize could be um, could be edited out, like Ernest Hemingway saying, "Kill your babies." Um, that is that um, the parts that you really, really, really think have to be part of your story, um, you should really, really cut. Um, and the point is, you know them. That's the part of the iceberg that isn't seen, but the part of the iceberg is there, and frequently they're written. Um, yeah. Wait, he said it was how long? Is that what he said? That seems um, excessive. <laughs> it seems well, ten thousand years, huh? Okay, then since the last ice age, I guess it makes sense. Um, so, but what Sam is saying is conceptually, there's a lot of stuff that we don't see. Um, I'm asking a kind of a technical question, or I'm asking a question of where the conceptual and the technical come together, which is when is it that you realize conceptually that, um, the, that some footage that you could put in the movie, it would be better not to put in the movie, not because it contradicts anything, but because it's not necessary. Um, and that's a place where concept and, um, and actual, the technical um, aspect of filmmaking, the, the actual act of production, um, where those things go together. Yeah. When he's like fact finding, trying to figure out what went wrong that day, mm -hmm. it's better to just imply that he did that by having him uh, realize, oh, you know, it's 3.35, I'm going to go around and catch this kid. Yeah. So things like that, maybe. Yeah. I think what you can think is they probably did several of those scenes did it did at least one repetition shot one repetition of several of those scenes um, and then decided but this is again this question of meta repetition um, that once you know that he it, that he knows all these things because he's seen them before just decide which one works best for something that he's seen before and is doing again and which ones, um, and have that stand in for all the other ones that he doesn't have to do. Um, so, you know, we, we see the crockery crashing, or we hear the crockery crashing four, let's say four times, something like four or five times in the course of the movie. Um, and then we see the actual prediction of that crockery crashing. Um, we've been predicting it. We know it's going to happen. 
um, and now we finally see it, and that's fine. Um, we don't. We see um, um, uh, Chris Elliott come in and say, "We better head out before the blizzard comes." Um, two or three times, we don't have to see it four or five times to know that he's going to do it. Um, and then there are things that um, we see twice um, and things that we only see once. And um, it's not saying anything about um, the material pressures of movie making or the material compromises that, that you do when you make a movie to say, yeah, he cut, he, Ramus, he... Um, they, the movie makers, decided, yeah, they only needed a couple of the of the meta repetitions to show that all these other events were repetitions, even though we only see them once. We're seeing them as repetition. So that's all fine. Um, the reason I'm asking this, the reason I'm pushing it is, is that it does raise the question of whether we think that there's something cut which maybe would have explained more when it comes to the old man. To me, it felt like um, one possible story that you can tell about the question of the old man, um, one possible story you can tell about making the movie, is that if they dwelled too long on the old man, it would ruin the um, really important velocity of the end of the movie. The movie really has to do a lot um, in its last 10 minutes or so. And to dwell too much on whether he saves this old man's life or not um, is going to slow things down, raise um, expository questions that um, need hard answers that can't be answered quickly, um, and um, will distract the audience from where it is that the movie's trying to go. So it's possible. Um, I think it's all, this is always an interesting question. Um, when do you see any work of art compromising and when do you see um, a work of art doing something because it really intends to do it? Um, when um, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, there, there are a lot of novelistic examples of this, but okay, let, let me give you an example since, since uh, Groundhog Day, Jean Dielman, and Ulysses, of course, one, and I the Divine. Um, there should be one time in your life that all four of those things are mentioned in the same class. Um, in James Joyce's Ulysses, do people know about it? How many people um, do? Okay, so Ulysses is um, widely but wrongly regarded as the greatest novel of the 20th century. Um, probably the greatest novel in English in the 20th century, um, but not the greatest novel of the 20th century. Um, so now you know that. Um, Ulysses is a book that Joyce, um, the greatest English language novelist of the 20th century, wrote between the years of 1914 and 1922. That is to say, he took eight years to write it. There, are, there is a movie version of it. Um, and it is about a single day. Um, that day is, anyone? June 16th, 1904. My birthday. 1904? Damn, you don't look a year over 80. That is great. June 16th is your birthday? Yeah. And you didn't know it was Bloomsday? Nope. Well, now you know. You should uh, celebrate it. 
you can, if you turn on the radio, you'll hear people reading Ulysses on the, on the um, lower frequencies of the FM um, spectrum on Bloomsday. Um, okay, so June 16th, 1904 is, is like one of those really famous days in literature, like the most famous day in literature. Um, all of Ulysses takes place on that day. It goes, actually goes on into the wee hours of the next morning. So it starts at um, 8 a.m. on June 16th, and it goes on till um, dawn of June 17th. And um, the novel is um, 752 pages long, if I recall correctly. And um, those 752 pages are describing in some detail what happens to three main characters. Stephen Dedalus, if you've read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, he will be familiar to you from that. Leopold Bloom and his wife, Molly Bloom. And um, Leopold Bloom is the main character of Ulysses, and he is based on Ulysses, that is Odysseus, um, in Homer's Odyssey. Um, Stephen Dedalus, the... Um, the young, intense intellectual writer is based on Odysseus's son, Telemachus, although Stephen is not Leopold Bloom's son. And Molly Bloom, <coughs> Leopold Bloom's wife, is based on Penelope from the Odyssey, Odysseus's wife. And what happens is that in the course of those um, 17 or 18 hours, it's not quite determinate how many hours there are, but in the course of those 17 or 18 hours, um, Bloom, Molly, and Stephen, and various other people um, going about their business in Dublin, um, some of that business being pretty intense, some of it not so much, um, reenact without knowing it the story of Telemachus, Odysseus, and Penelope. Um, the story of Telemachus, um, Odysseus, and Penelope in the Odyssey takes place over 10 years. Um, that's telescoped in Bloomsday into a single day. So that's what Ulysses is about. That's why it's called Ulysses. Ulysses is the Roman name for Odysseus. Um, same character, um, just the Roman rather than the Greek name for Odysseus. Um, so because you're getting this exhaustive account of their day um, over the course of 752 pages and over the course of eight years of writing, about which Joyce said that it took him eight years to write the novel and it will take the English professors 300 years to figure out everything that's in it, um, which, um, you know, it's because he liked English professors so much that he said that, I feel sure. Um, and he was right to like us. He understood how important we were compared to him. Um, that um, whatever he's doing in Ulysses, he's not making really stupid mistakes. Um, he was he worked on it incredibly hard. He's incredibly careful about it, and um, so of course there are mistakes. There are mistakes in everything, but there aren't stupid mistakes in Ulysses. So one thing that happens in Ulysses is there's a major event, a fight, that breaks out, that Bloom saves Stephen from getting um, terribly injured in, which is not narrated in the book. That is, everything else is narrated. Bloom's morning bowel movement is narrated with some um, um, delicacy and interest. Um, what he's reading as he's sitting in the outhouse and the pleasure, the combined pleasure of reading and pooping. Um, 
Joyce just goes on at some length about that. But this major event, which is um, Stephen getting into a, into a drunken fight with a couple of soldiers, isn't narrated. And we can only put it together from hints and fragments after the fact. So the question is, is that a compromise on Joyce's part? Did he feel like, oh, you know, bowel movements are easy, but comedy is hard? Um, or was there a reason to do that? And to ask the question answers it. There was a reason he did it. That's not a compromise. Um, why he did it um, is something you can argue about, but there's a reason for doing it. In other cases, what, um, when you're talking about any literary work of art, um, you will see things that are compromises. You'll see places where um, the story cheats for whatever reason that, that it has to cheat, um, usually because it would be too hard to do the uncompromising version. Um, because it would slow things down too much, because there would have to be too much explanation, because um, it would be inelegant. For whatever reason, um, frequently what you'll be able to do is identify things as compromises where the compromise is between power of exposition, let's say, and detail of exposition. A compromise between explaining everything so that the audience isn't puzzled, um, which will bore the audience to death, or giving a version of the story that is interesting at every moment, even though that requires you to say things that don't quite make sense. Um, and movies, which really, American movies especially, which really are about keeping you interested at every moment, having the story always be a story that this is not the place to put the movie on pause, maybe at the end of the next scene. Ideally, you will feel that way all the way through a movie, that you'll put it on pause at, an, at a good place to put it on pause, but there'll never be a good place to put it on pause. Um, what that means is you don't want to slow things down with exposition. So. The old man in um, Groundhog Day, um, the question is, is his story dropped? Well, the first question is, is his story dropped? The second question is, assuming that it is dropped, um, is it dropped because we know enough that um, we don't need to know anymore? Or is it dropped because um, there has to be, because um, Ramus is doing a compromise with um, the speed and power and interestingness and um, sheer absorption of the love story that we're watching. So what do you guys think? Is his story dropped? Yeah. Elias. Well, I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's definitely not. I, it does It does have an element of it being dropped, but at the same time, like, there is still, like, a good amount of time, like, put into it. And I feel like if you were going to drop it, like, I wouldn't have, like, left it there. Like, I feel like it's, like, purposeful in that, like, there was still enough time devoted to it that it, you can, I, I, I can't imagine just eliminating it. Um, and then, but at the same time, I just feel like I can't get over the fact that it's all the homeless man. Mm -hmm. Like, if, if there were going to be, like, a reason that you wanted to keep the focus on, like, like, the, the love interest element, that would make sense to me. But, like, when you, in this specific case, given it's a homeless person, 
Like it's it's hard for me to imagine that that's like. Okay, well this one we have to we, we just can't we can't have everything like work out. You know. Wait, it's hard for you to imagine that. It's, it's really hard for me to imagine because it's the homeless man. Like that's like something that we all interact with. We all see a homeless man every day, and like the fact that like that doesn't work out seems like pretty important. I mean like. Yeah. Even if it would have been hard to like resolve it, I think that that even that is is important. Mm-hmm. Like 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 just just the recognition that it would have been hard to, to have this work out. Okay, in which case Yeah, like so it. you're saying it's not a compromise. It's not a com- uh yeah, I mean like it's not a compromise. But <laughs> it's not it's it, making a it might be making a, a, a cynical point. All right, let's say a compromise just to be clear what I mean by comp- compromise when it comes to movies. Um, because that that will clarify compromise in other works of art. But when it comes to movies, you know, I mean, a compromise in a poem is um, you have to come up with a stupid rhyme because you really need a rhyme. Um, I'll just give you an example because I love it so much. Um, There's a Cole Porter song, Always True to You in My Fashion. Anyone know it? Really? How can that title not make you immediately whip out your phones and Google it? Um, You know it, Sam? Um, well, they're all <laughs> full of homonyms. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, basically the singer is saying, I really love you, and, but, you know, there are all these rich people that I like to spend time with, rich men that I like to spend time with, but I'm always true to you in my fashion. Yes, I'm always true to you in my way. Um, so there's, um, um, if I invite... Um, some boy to dine one night on my fine Finn and Hattie. <laughs> Such a great name for a fish dish, isn't it? If I invite some boy to dine one night on my fine Finn and Hattie, I just adore when he asks for more. Actually, yeah, so, um, I'm confusing it with a different song. Never mind. That's uh, my heart belongs to Daddy. Um, they're all the same. They're all different. They're all great. Um, but there's one which is, um, there's, um, there's a wolfish, um, Hindu priest, there's a something Hindu priest who's a wolf to say the least, um, if the priest, um, turns, if the priest goes too far east, I also stray, but I'm always true to you, darling, in my fashion. Yes, I'm always true to you, sweetheart, in my way. And um, what you're um, wondering, if you're me, is why is the rhyme on east, that is um, priest, least, and east, why is that the rhyme, rather than um, the more obvious rhyme on um, mouth and south? Um, that is, if the priest is moving eastward, why doesn't Cole Porter use, as you would expect him to, the obvious rhyme on mouth and south? Um, and the answer is that there's no other word that rhymes with mouth and south in English. Um, that there's only a double rhyme, whereas Cole Porter was using triple rhymes, least, priest, east, whereas you would have mouth, south, and what. So you can figure, well, he... Um, was thinking mouth and south. You can reconstruct his thought process, as one does when one hears a popular song. Um, you can reconstruct his thought process, and you can see him going bouth, couth, douth, fouth, gouth. 
and saying, okay, that's not going to work. I'm going to do priest, east, and least. Um, and then you would think, okay, so he's compromising. But then you'll realize that actually she's talking about the fact that they're horizontal rather than vertical when the Hindu priest is straying towards the east. Um, and that what looked like a compromise was actually a kind of trick to get you to think he was compromising and then get you to realize, to picture, that he had to be picturing them as horizontal in order to use east rather than vertical in order to use south, and then to realize, oh, but the whole point was to think of them as horizontal. Um, so that's really what makes Cole Porter funny. Um, but that's it. Yeah. That, then that is it. Then, then it is a compromise, because compromise, in, in this sense, is to draw attention to a compromise, to reveal the greater... Right, so which I means... I think that then, then, it, then it definitely is. No, but then it's definitely not. In other words, he's drawing attention to a fake compromise. But I think it is... I think, I think, I, I okay, but then it's just terminology. It. The point is, when it's... I saw the movie as a kid, I remember thinking to myself, what about the homeless man? Like, like, I oh, thinking, I thought you were thinking, what about mouth and south? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, but like, I mean, like, I think, I don't know, it's, I think that, 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 that to some extent, like, it, it's, all right, well. <laughs> all right, so... The point then, the question, is, the, when we're talking about compromises in movies, we could say, would you understand something as a compromise between the director and the producer, or would you understand something as something that we're supposed to notice? So what happens with the homeless man, do you remember when you last see him, what the last scene with him is? What is it? No, that's not the last scene. No, they, it, there's repetition with the homeless man after that. He's, he's feeding him at, at the diner. He's, they're ordering um, soup. No, that's... Oh, is CPR... Maybe CPR is the last one? CPR is the last one? Okay, so first he dies in the hospital. He gives him money. So let's just talk about the homeless man scene. First, the homeless man is just someone in the background. And he's important as a marker because we notice him um, the first time that he's there in the movie before we know that there's going to be any repetition. Then the next day, he walks right by the homeless man who's there, and he's uncanny. That is, he's one of the things, um, not only saying that this is repetition, but saying that it's repetition. I, this movie is so good that, it, that uh, you always wonder if you really want to get down these by, go down these byways. And you know I hate going down byways, but I will. Um, so the first day, the second day, the first repetition, um, we know that it's repetition. The first indication that it's repetition is what? The song on the it's the same song on the radio, um, breaking in at the same time. Do you remember what the song is? Yeah. I got you, babe. Um, and then the same patter, and um, Bill Murray kind of mutters at the radio, um, which is that they seem to have put the tape on from the previous day. Um, that anticipates what's going to happen in, an, in another movie about a weather forecaster. No? Steve Martin? Who plays a weather forecaster in um, L.A. Story? No, you don't know it? It's actually, a, it must be a tip of the hat to this. Really? Huh. You should see it. It's good. Steve Martin plays a weather forecaster in L.A. Story who 
um, has the most boring job in the world because he's forecasting the weather in L.A., and the weather is always the same. Um, and so finally he's got to go do something. It's really an emergency. So he just says, you know, just put in a tape of, of last week's forecast, um, and it'll be fine. Um, of course it isn't. It rains. Um, but um, so, yeah, so, so Bill Murray thinks um, that they're just playing a tape of the previous day's show. Um, then he looks out the window, and um, what happened to the blizzard? Um, then he, um, because he's back in the room because of the blizzard, but what happened to the blizzard? Then he meets the guy in the hallway um, who says it's Groundhog Day, and that's where he starts realizing what we, of course, are officially realizing, but kind of have already realized, is that it's repetition. Um, but so far, and then he goes downstairs for the coffee, um, so far the repetition is all what you could call for Bill Murray, for him. It's repetition for hyphen him, repetition for that person. He's the focus and focalized figure of that repetition. It's repetition because the same thing is happening to him over and over and over again. But then he walks down the street, and at this point we're attuned to this question or to the fact that it seems to be repetition. And as he's walking down the street, we are noticing stuff that we noticed the day before that he didn't. That's what makes us a little bit like Jean Dillman. That is, we are noticing stuff that he just breezed right by. And the figure that we notice, I mean, tell me if this is true to your experience of the movie, but I think it, it really has to be. The figure that we notice first from the day before is the beggar, is the homeless man. And he just breezes right by him. But we noticed him the day before. We noticed him the day before partly because he's there to indicate what a selfish jerk Bill Murray is. Um, that is that he breezes right by this guy. But it's not a big deal. It's just that if you have a beggar in a movie, um, that's never innocent. Um, if a director decides to put a beggar in the movie, that's not just background. Um, that's always a moral symptom or a, um, a moral criterion for how to understand um, the characters who interact with that figure. I mean, this goes, this goes back probably to Greek drama, that if you have such a figure in a play or movie, in a scene, um, the writer or the director or the creator of this wants that figure to be there to provide some sort of moral index to those who are interacting with it. It's a little bit like the turtle at the beginning of The Grapes of Wrath, if you remember that poor turtle. Um, so we've noticed him, and we've noticed Bill Murray not noticing him or not, not paying any attention to him. Does this sound right to you? Then, when he's there the next day, he becomes a figure of, what, of something slightly uncanny, which is that the repetition is occurring whether Bill Murray is noticing its details or not. Because once again, he's not noticing the beggar. That's not part of his knowledge of the world being repeated. That's not how he's seeing that he's in a repeated scene. 
but it's part of what we're seeing as the repeated scene. Do you guys agree with that? This is, a, and so I think that that makes the beggar really, really interesting, because he does become um, part of what's repeating every day in the movie that isn't repeating for Bill Murray, for Phil Connor, but it's simply repeating. And we're aware of it, even though he himself isn't. And um, in a sense, it's a surprise that he should come back, because he seems a kind of important background figure, which is an oxymoron but he seems to be an important element of the background. Not a foregrounded figure, but an important backgrounded figure. And then he does get foregrounded in a gag later on when Bill Murray gives him a ton of money. And we think, okay, so this here's a lovely, um, we don't think this, but what's happening there is that's one of a number of indications of, of how Bill Murray's character is changing. Um, what would be the locus classicus for that, for him giving the homeless guy a bunch of money this time when he hasn't done it before? It's like one of the central um, parts of English and American culture of literary generosity, of characters changing in order to become generous and we all have a warm feeling and we're happy about it. Yeah. Yeah, Christmas Carol. That is, sorry? It's a wonderful life later. Yeah. Um, but, but um, yeah, and that's a, that's a nice connection, but it's a wonderful life in a way as a redoing of a Christmas Carol as well. So, yeah, a Christmas Carol. That is that Bill Murray is, um, you know, his his great ancestor in this sort of, um, storytelling is Scrooge. That is, um, A Christmas Carol is also about repetition and about trying to figure out how to repeat these events with a difference. Um, you know, if you've seen, you don't have to have read the book if you've seen any version of the movie. By the way, do you guys know who Mr. Magoo is speaking of the Christmas, of Christmas Carol? Um, my kids didn't. I was really shocked. Um, sorry? <laughs> yeah, there is a Leslie Nielsen, Mr. Magoo movie, isn't there? Um, do you guys know Gilligan's Island? Um, so the rich man in Gilligan's Island, Thurston Howell III? Yes? Or are you thinking of the movie version of Gilligan's Island? Okay, yeah. So the, the professor in Gilligan's Island just died, um, so it's very much on my mind. Um, the rich guy, the millionaire and his wife, the millionaire is, is Thurston Howell III, um, and he is played by an actor named Jim Backus, who did the voice for Mr. Magoo in the original um, cartoon, 1949 cartoon of Mr. Magoo. So Mr. Magoo used to be a cartoon, um, and it was like as famous as Bugs Bunny in its day. Do you know it, Matt? Do you know it, Zach? Yeah, so maybe it's, maybe it's just you guys are on the cusp of don't like Blade Runner, don't know who Mr. Magoo is. Um, it's the sad degeneration of our culture. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, so there is a Christmas Carol uh, full-length cartoon that they used to show every Christmas um, with Mr. Magoo playing Scrooge. So it's a kind of cartoon about a 
cartoon. Um, and uh, so Mr. Magoo decides he's going to play Scrooge. He puts on his glasses. He plays Scrooge. So if you've seen any version of A Christmas Carol, the point is that, um, that Scrooge does it wrong, and Tiny Tim dies, and there's sorrow and misery abro um, abroad in all the lands and in all of London, and Scrooge um, sees his own coffin, and he's all really sad about that, but then he gets another chance, and this time he does it right, and one of the ways he does it right is to be generous when before he hadn't been generous, and now we feel good about Scrooge and good about... Um, good about the Cratchits and good about Tiny Tim and good about London and good about England and good about imperialism and good about all sorts of things. Um, and um, that redo where someone learns to be generous, that's the story that Dickens tells in The Christmas Carol through a story of repetition. So repetition towards generosity. And that's what happens when Bill Murray gives the homeless guy uh, stops to give him money when before he hadn't. Um, and now the homeless guy is there for him in a way that he hadn't been before. And he gives him money. And if you remember that scene, first he peels off a dollar from, or you know, some bill from the wad of money that he's presumably taken from the um, um, armored car yet again. Um, but he peels off a bill. Um, and then he decides to give the guy the whole wad. Um, and then it's after that, that same evening, in the um, most explicit sense of same, that is, um, before the day repeats again, um, that the guy dies in the hospital. Um, and so that's the first death that the homeless man has. Um, then he feeds him soup and um, gives him his own soup in the restaurant and then I guess there's the he tries to give him CPR um, in the alley um, and that's the last time we see him is that right? Okay so um, I guess the question is is one thing the homeless guy is clearly doing um, is giving us an index of Bill Murray becoming human and generous and becoming what he was trying to seem to be to Andy McDowell um, halfway through the movie. That is, halfway through the movie, he's acting the part of a decent human being and learning um, through trial and error exactly what to do to act that part. But now he's actually becoming a decent human being. So there's that, a kind of triple rhythm there where he starts out not giving a shit whether he's a decent human being, then not giving a shit whether he's perceived as a decent human being, um, where he's hilariously funny. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to uh, stay and talk longer, but I'm not going to. Um, one of the great lines of the movie. Um, then he realizes that um, he should act the part of being a decent human being, and that itself is a decent impulse. To want to seem decent is the beginning of a decent impulse on his part. Um, and then he actually starts becoming a decent human being, and the homeless guy is an index of the fact that he has become a decent human being. Um, and then, nevertheless, it looks like none of that saves his life. Um, the homeless guy still dies. And uh, the question is, and, you know, he wanted to see his chart. He never does see his chart. That could be a cutting room floor thing. He might see the chart and see that the guy died of hunger, which would make sense of um, how careful he is to feed him um, the next time. 
Um, but he doesn't see his chart, and the nurse, presumably she's a nurse, basically says, no, there's no chart for you to see. He just died because he was old. Um, so the question is, is that true? Is that conceptually part of the movie, that he died because he was old? Or um, is it that there was a chart to see, but um, they decided that that would slow things down too much? I think this is, I, I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that. Yeah. Maybe ascribing. more to the movie than it deserves. But uh, it could be sort of a moral about the fact that we can't fix everything. Yeah. Yeah, and she, that's clearly, I mean, clearly that moral is there. The question is um, w whether that's the trumping moral. One good thing about repetition is you can get different morals each time. You know, think of other movies about repetition, if you've seen them like Sliding Doors um, or Run, Lola, Run where you do get a different moral um, in each repetition of that series of events. Yeah? I think Bill Murray killed the man for us because uh, once he starts paying attention, then he's responsible for him. Okay. Um, and because he's responsible for him, he kills him? Not really. No, I know, I know you didn't. No, no, no. I, I'm not asking that skeptically. <laughs> the old man becomes, an, becomes a, a character for us because he becomes someone for Bill Murray, and therefore his death becomes a death for us. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And um, that might be part of what's, um, what was always intended about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that the old man was uh, somewhat of like a foreshadowing of what his life would be like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Okay, good. Yeah. No, no, no. I think you're right. Um, and his daily death. Um, I mean, one thing presumably that we discover is that he's been dying every day um, before Bill Murray became aware of it. That is, if it really is 10,000 years, which seems excessive. Um, that's 10,000 years of daily deaths that this, this man has had before, it even, before he starts registering um, on, on Phil Connor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the movie itself like tries to have the whole idea that Bill, Bill Murray's a god throughout the, throughout the entire film. So this could be also like there's a higher power above him. Also, death to him is very detrimental. Same way we see Bill Murray's that dead in the morgue, and we see the people mourning for him. So I mean, to him, it's very emotionally dis like emotionally disturbing. Even though he's seen it a thousand times, ten thousand times, uh -huh. it's still to him very disturbing to see a man's death. Yeah. So in a way, he's answering to a higher power that he can't control, even though he can control everything else because he already knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, whether that higher power is a god or not, though, is a question 
um, could it simply be um, the the absence of some meaning that will that will transcend everything? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, like to one, like one, like it's almost like I'm thinking, sitting here thinking, like, well, what if he did save his life, and like, what would that be like in comparison to like not saving his life? Um, and I was just thinking, like, it's almost like too. It would be like too easy of like a story. It would be too like it would be like okay, all you have to do is recognize in all these previous repetitions if you're not being like generous enough, be generous, problem solved, you know. But like yeah. it, it, I mean, maybe maybe that higher power which people are picking up on is just like the like the idea that it's not just like it's not just all about you and your own like issues, and if you just deal with yourself like that kind of like self, and you can just change everything. Yeah. There's still certain things. It's not that you can't, but like he's still trying. That's the other interesting thing. Is he doesn't like go, oh, well, this guy just keeps dying, so there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Like, he keeps trying. Yeah. So, but I don't know if that was like, because there was not that many repetitions, I don't know how significant, like, the, that we see. But yeah. like, if, if he is like, still trying to save this guy, <coughs> even though it's possible, because he still finds out that like, he died of old age before, before that's not the last it didn't end with that it didn't end with him yeah. like, oh well this guy's just gonna keep dying I'll move yeah. on you know like it ended with him still trying yeah and doing CPR yeah even if he knows that it's not gonna necessarily work yeah so well, maybe so it's like like it's about like continuing even in the face of of a certain failure yeah to some extent okay so there there are a bunch of things that are going on here one thing to notice then is this that um I guess I want to put it this way, that I think the movie is really good, and one thing that makes it really good is that it makes sense. That is, that even though you have this totally contrary to fact, um, world situation, uh, plot, structure of um, unfolding, um, experience of time, experience of the universe, um, nevertheless, um, emotionally, psychologically, interpersonally, the movie makes sense. And the fact that it makes sense, um, even though it is so, um, you could say, philosophically out there, that is, um, so out there as far as its representation of the world goes, the fact that it makes sense um, means that what we have here are a series of really interesting thought experiments about our own intuitions, um, about how we think of others, how we think of space, how we think of time, and so on. Um, now, one of the things that makes sense about the movie, um, and yet that is also puzzling, it's when things make sense, when, when things that make sense are puzzling, which is what, what Achilles and the tortoise is. Something that makes sense, Achilles passes a tortoise, is puzzling. That's what's always an interesting focus of philosophical um, thought when things that make intuitive sense are puzzling when you try to figure out why they make sense, that's what a focus of philosophical thought is. So in this case, there's a puzzle, which is that he's trying to save the guy's life and failing. And um, the question is, why does he want to save the guy's life? <coughs> and the answer would be something like, just to put it in a perfectly anodyne, uncontroversial, reasonable way, except in the context of this movie, he wants to save the guy's life so that he'll live another day. 
but he doesn't have to save the guy's life for him to live another day because the guy will live another day whether he saves his life or not. So the question is, why for him and why for us does it seem so important that he should save the guy's life when the guy is going to be alive the next day anyhow? And that's already been established by the fact that his own suicides, probably, again, the only the only place where you can use the word suicides in the plural with a singular pronoun, his own suicides, um, are insignificant after the first one in the movie. So he does that Thelma and Louise thing, um, Phil and Phil, um, as, as they ride off, ride the pickup truck into the quarry, and he's dead, and then he wakes up. And then he jumps off the building, and he um, kills himself in, in seven or eight different ways. Um, and each time, um, every suicide is completely insignificant because he wakes up the next day. So why, if his own death is so insignificant, is the death of the beggar so significant when the result is that they'll wake up the next day? Now, that is obviously a central, a way of posing the central question of the movie which is, what is the difference? It's an other minds question. What is the difference between him and everyone else? And the difference in some sense is that everyone else is for him. Not for him something, but simply they are there for him. They are for hims. They do not have the history of experience that he does. They are recreated anew every day, what they were, exactly what they were the day before, with no experience or memory, again, like Dark City, with no experience or memory of what has happened in the last 24 hours between 6 a.m. and 6 a.m. Every day is a complete refreshal for them, but not for him. For him, every day is a day added to his experience and knowledge of who they are and what they're like. And so what that means is that <coughs> everyone else, in some sense, is for him an object, even when he's treating them as real, trying to understand who they are, what they want, what sorts of people they are, um, what's good about them, what's bad about them, even when he's trying to treat them as real, they nevertheless, their reality is different from his reality because their reality is that they return to what they were. And anything that happens to them doesn't matter. It only matters to him what has happened to them the day before. But it doesn't matter to them because they just get reset. They just get rewound. He doesn't get rewound. Physically, he probably does. That is, he's, um, we're, we're, I think, to presume that he's not getting older, even though he does get more and more disheveled as he gets more and more exhausted. I think we're not supposed to assume that um, however long he's lived in, um, in Punxsutawney, his, his personal time has aged him that much. 
Um, presumably, he's always the same age at 6 a.m. every day, but he's the same age with accreted knowledge, accreted um, changes in character. He's becoming a different person. They're not. And so our subjective investment in the movie is in him and not in anyone else, at least for the first two-thirds of the movie. Now, one thing um, that happens early on in the movie is there's a slightly surprising scene the second time you see it, which is that there's a very brief conversation between Andy McDowell and Chris Elliott after he... Um, after she gets out of the van to go to her hotel and he's going to go to the bed and breakfast and he's really glad he's not going to be staying at that hotel, there is, they have an interchange about um, how um, um, ridiculously self-preening he is. And that's a conversation that he doesn't hear. But that's the only thing that happens in about the first um, two-thirds of the movie, let's say the first 90 minutes or so of the movie. That's the only thing that happens out of his earshot that we see. Only that little moment. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Sort of right. Nice. Yeah. So, so that um, what we can do. So, the to, to put one way of putting that is to say that for the first ninety minutes or so of the movie, there's nothing that um, that we know that he doesn't know, except for this one very fast interchange um, between Chris Elliott and, and and Andy McDowell. There's nothing that we know that he doesn't know. But the converse isn't true. There's plenty that he knows that we don't know, but the reason for that is simply that the movie has skipped over those parts when he's learned them. Um, not because um, we're in one place while he's investigating somewhere else. We're always with him, um, although he's not... No, oh, sorry, he's always with us, although we're not always with him because we skip um, scenes. Um, but he is always with us. Then, when he steals the pickup truck, that's the first time the movie starts giving us a lot of other points of view. A lot of points of view from, um, from scenes that he doesn't belong to. That is, he gets into the truck and starts... Um, starts driving away, and the two masters of ceremony or the two, the two costume people um, who, are, who, who are taking care of um, the groundhog say, wait, where's he going with the truck? And um, they say, we got to chase him. And they start chasing him, and they talk to the cops, and um, we get lots of conversation that he doesn't hear. Um, he's stuck in the quarry, and they're saying, ha, ah, there's no way out, um, and they're gloating about that. And he's gone. He's missing. We're with these other characters in the movie, but he's gone. Then he comes back, then they die, and they watch him die, and Chris Elliott says, oh, he could still be alive. And then the <coughs> truck explodes, and he shakes his head and says no. And really, so when we get away from 
his subjective world, that occurs when he dies. And then he dies over and over and over again. And then we see him in the morgue. And we're very much not in his subjective world when we see his dead body in the morgue. And from then on, there are lots of scenes where people talk about him, living and dead, when he's not part of the scene that they're talking about him. So now we know plenty that he doesn't know. It's no longer the case that he's always with us, even if we're not always with him. Um, yeah? I thought one of the most interesting parts for me was that we saw his dead body. Yeah. The fact that his dead body just hung around for, uh, you know, another eight hours. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that was an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. That he doesn't just wake up after he dies. Yeah. So he, he must know what death feels like. Yeah, except that we cut to 6 a.m. So he's covered over, then it's eight hours later at 6 a.m., and he wakes up. So it's, it's, his experience must be like the experience of, of uh, general anesthesia, which if you've ever had, it's like, when is the anesthesia going to start? Well, actually, it's over. Um, all right, think about, I mean, just source code is great, really like, like it. But think about for um, Thursday um, the question, why the auction at the end of the movie? Why the bachelor auction? Um, it seems really um, interesting and significant. Um, and also, yeah, um, yeah, we'll start with that. Okay, enjoy uh, source code.